What did? Well, to back up, there's a certain poetic justice to it because I, an idiot, yeah, thought that I could break away for a little while. My plan was to step away from online. It was to, you know, go a couple weeks maybe and just, you know, not do any posting. I deleted it off my phone. I deleted mm. it off my iPad. You know, like, just really try to separate a little bit. Find some inner peace. That's so to why speak. you switched to texting me yeah. instead yeah, of yeah, yeah. every right. other e- medium. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But of course, the second I did that, I started getting emails <laughs> again, and okay. it happened again. And this phenomenon, it drives me nuts, and I don't understand. I guess well, well, I, what is I the do, phenomenon? I do first. understand it, but I don't understand why people do it. Um, I got more emails about author tweets. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had someone email you, the agent, and been like, your author is behaving online in a manner that is not that is just not acceptable to me? Actually, you ever people go, <clears throat> no, people go to the owner of our agency yeah. and send and her about emails you. about my tweets. Right, yeah, no, I remember that. It ha- um, it's happened multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that time they e- that person emailed Print Run and t- said to you that I couldn't be an agent because I'd, I wanted Confederate monuments pulled down? Yeah. That was a good day. That was uh, funny. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, yeah, I got more set of emails because people were fighting online. Sure. And then they, you know, decided that the way that they were going to stick it to this person, my client, was to email their agent, right? And it's kind of posted in their bio and everything, right, as, as authors yeah. sometimes do, right? And these people, they have this idea that if they email... They start looking for anyone in power that they can find, right? Like the second someone gets mad online, the specific sort of like hall monitor type person that is just absolutely pervasive these days. And it's just horrible. They need to talk to the manager. Yeah, exactly. They get into speak to your manager mode and they want to talk to your boss. They want to talk to anyone they can find that they think has any modicum of power over you, which we like don't, by the way. Like (laughs) that's not how this relationship works at all. But so I get these emails and they're, they're always like super like breathy, right? They're always like... Well, I just wanted you to know that your author has been, you know, saying things online and it's just I don't know that it's becoming for some and they try to like compliment you into like disrespect. Yeah. <laughs> Question. Yeah. Is is the author that o- that you always get emails about like uh-huh. or the authors yeah. that you always get emails about? It is about more than one. Women? Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely They're all women. women. <laughs> They're all women. It's definitely women. What a surprise. Um yeah, no, isn't that crazy though? Like I just can't imagine. I don't know when online got to a point where we all decided that the thing you do when you're mad at someone, when you're trading tweets and you're arguing about whatever, and you just get so hopping mad that you're just red and nude and ready to yell at someone. Like, yeah. The thing you do is, gotta, I got to talk to their boss. I got to just snitch on them. Like, what? It just, I can't understand. One, I can't understand the behavior from a purely, like, playground moral standpoint. <laughs> like, it's just like, what are you doing? Like, don't do that. And second of all, it's just really stupid because, again, like, one, I specifically definitely don't care. And two, but, like, I, the idea that agents are, like, hovering around their clients' social media. Do you care what your authors tweet? Uh, unless it's not, like, a pro-Nazi stance, right. I'm fine. Right, Or, like, super-duper-duper duper racist or, like, turfy or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. if, if you... Right. 
treat other people like they're good people and you're not xenophobic or yeah. homophobic or racist or any of those things, then we're good. See, I would even I would even go a step further than that, which is to say that I don't even necessarily particularly care if you tweet like someone harassing you if you like, you know, clap back a little bit or you get a little nasty with them. Oh, like, I I right, appreciate like, that. That's fine. Like like but it's just <clears throat> it's just this very strange it's a very privileged thing to do you can tell it's like people who are just used to being able to appeal to power yeah and have it work and it just drives me nuts they have and that like angled bob and wear a lot of <laughs> bracelets yeah exactly yeah there's just like a certain i don't i don't even know how to identify this group of people other than by this by this behavior that the second anything happens online they're ready to just start sending emails so and do you ever respond I never respond to the emails. No. no, I do. One thing, the funniest thing that's ever happened though with this, is one time someone sent me an email about a client, mm-hmm. and they're like, I didn't respond at all because it was stupid and in bad. That's the other thing about this; it's always in really bad faith. Like they're not actually concerned. They don't actually find anything that's been said offensive. They're just simply trying to stick it to someone in a mean spirited way. Yep. Um, and. Then, three weeks later, the same person who emailed me queried me. <gasps> that was really good. That was, like, my favorite day. This person's, like, sending me this email about, I don't know what's going on on your list, but it certainly seems unbecoming. And then, like, they three, want, they're three like, weeks, please let me on the like, list. Please let me be this person's, like, you know, peer. <laughs> let me let me on the list. Yeah. It was really good. That's um, amazing. Yeah, really good. I'm glad that online has degenerated into just hall monitors and pedants and bad faith arguments across the board. It's really healthy. Um, but I'm going to try to resume my break again. Now oh, that I don't believe that's ever going to happen. <laughs> it was just so funny to, like, wake up <laughs> and the first, like, I've got my coffee, right? I'm like, oh, I'm not going to go on Twitter. I'm going to sit here and do this nice, calm Twitter thing. comes to you. And the very first email, the first email, the <clears throat> subject line is, Twitter thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God damn it. Um, That's amazing. Anyway. um, The universe doesn't want you to quit. The The universe universe doesn't want you to log off is what that means. And I never will. Um, But anyway, welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. So we've got a few different things to talk about today. Um, Some... I don't know, I guess some high-minded stuff, some specific issue stuff. But before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown? Yeah, so it's February. Yes, it is. Um, Still According February. to everybody's calendars, which means we have three special episodes coming for you uh, yet this month. Uh, one is a query show, one is a first-page show, and then a third is kind of a secret mm-hmm. until it'll come out. Um, but yeah, if you want to listen to those, head on over to Patreon and look up Print Run Podcast. You know, smash yeah. that, like, mm-hmm. become a member button. Yeah, that's right. Um, do that. And if you want us to critique your query or your first page, send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. I think we should also, just because periodically, because we don't say it every episode and we do get, we're kind of still gaining listeners. If you like the show, um, rate us on iTunes. We would love to get your review. Um, it always helps support the show and everything. Um, if you're one of those people who only wants to give us like one star, maybe just skip it and instead just listen to a different podcast. Like go listen but... to Pod Save America or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but if you like the show, I would encourage a great way to support it. If in fact you do not want to like join the Patreon or anything, is to just leave us an iTunes rating. Yeah. Um, so. 
yeah, otherwise, uh, what do we got? I'm looking at my list here, and the first funny thing that's jumping out at me, uh, pursuant some of our pre- previous conversations on the show, is that uh, we got first sale, first week sale numbers on Jill Abramson's book. Uh, <laughs> if you remember, for those who are not familiar with the name, this is the person who wrote um, a book called Merchants of Truth. It is like this big, splashy book about the state of journalism from the former editor-in-chief of the New York Times, Jill Abramson. Sounds um, like a great book, right? It sold for um, a $1 million, million dollars, dollars. About a million bucks. Um, and we're hearing that first sales, according to BookScam, which is pretty accurate, not entirely accurate, pretty accurate, um, 2.8K. The sales thousand. Wow, uh, twenty eight hundred books. That is four hundred and fifty seven dollars <laughs> paid to Jill Abramson we per did do the copy. Ago, didn't we? Yeah, per copy sold. It's uh, so good. It's so as good. Rem- as a reminder, Jill Abramson, um, in early review copy, got out, and a bunch of people that she had interviewed or hadn't interviewed, mm-hmm. but claimed to have interviewed, and had glaring inaccuracies. Yeah. Um, basically called her out for it. Yeah, it was a really badly journalized book. Yeah. Um, it's also got a bunch of plagiarism in, in it, yep. we're hearing now. Um, but, again, you can go back and listen to our developed thoughts on the issue. But we did finally get the sales number, and it turns out that I guess all the bad press, that all press is not good press, um, and it seems to have hit the book kind of hard. Um, so that is If somebody wants to certainly... pay me $457 <laughs> for any of my books. A million dollars. Do you know what you could do with a million dollars in publishing? Think do, about... you, do you know what you can do with a million dollars in general? <laughs> I'm just thinking like you could take a million bucks as just purely if you were trying to like distribute advances. Mm. You could pay for what? Years of good debut fiction? Oh, years, right? Like, like you yeah, could stock, many, many you seasons. You could stock like a decade of seasons of and pay like well for any of those. Yeah. yeah I don't know. It's maddening. Anyway. Yeah. Um, crazy. <laughs> the, um, the joke's on us, though, because Jill doesn't like she's only going to get that million because she's not earning out. Yeah, right. But yeah. she still has that million. Yeah. The, the As always, the real losers is us. Um, and she has won because she got the money. Who so. do you think? Eric, I mean, so the answer to this question is, of course, it should be Jill Abramson. But, mm-hmm. like, who do you think got yelled at the most when these book scan numbers came in? Okay, so this is tricky um, because in a lot of circumstances, like, if it, if it were someone else, I would say the acquiring editor mm. is who would be in trouble here. But this is a very powerful acquiring editor. This is someone who's been at the company. Like, it's... You know, not all acquiring editors are equal in power and weight, you Mm. know, with regard to their standing at a given house. And so probably because you can't blame her, you're probably moving to, I don't know, who's who's young and disposable. The copy editor, the one who didn't catch all the plagiarism and all of the inaccuracies. You can probably get mad at the fact checker. You can probably. (laughs) Was there a fact? I don't think it was fact checked. Yeah. Well, the lack of the the copy editor, then you're right. Um you're probably, because they're, like, in earshot and you can find them, you're probably yelling at the publicists. Mm. Um, not that they've, you know, what are you going to do with this, you, right? You, <laughs> you, you move on to a different book is yeah. what you do. You hit the big reset button. Um, yeah, man. So, so that was a thing. That was that was probably the first of uh, two moments of maybe shouldn't have acquired that. <laughs> Uh, for yeah. for this this episode, yeah. the second one is one that Little Brown acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. was 
this is something that if you were logged off of Twitter like Eric, you probably missed. Um, but author E.J. Levy, who won the Flannery O'Connor Award um, for the book Love in Theory, sold her book called The Cape Doctor in a preempt mm-hmm. uh, to a senior editor at Little Brown. Mm-hmm. Um the Kate Doctor was, and I'm just going to read this directly from the, the marketplace, from the publisher's yeah. marketplace listing because it's important. Mm. Um, but the Kate Doctor, pitched as about the true story of Doctor James Miranda Barry, 1795 to 1865, a flamboyant, brilliant 19th century physician who rose to prominence in South Africa, eventually achieving the rank of Inspector General of Military Hospitals, where he was accused of a scandalous homosexual, which is in scare quotes, romance with Lord Charles Somerset, only to be discovered on his deathbed to have been a woman all along to Judy Klein. Yeah, so there you go. Um, The problem with all of this is um, in his own writing and in um, correspondences for his entire life and in his funerary wishes, Dr. James Miranda Berry uh, wanted to be known as a man. And this new novel about a real person Uh um, is presenting this historical figure as a woman basically cross-dressing. The author called uh, this person a heroine. On, yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. And amongst other things. And so the issue here is I mean, obviously, it's in, in some ways, it's really simple. And in some ways, as we're going to kind of get into, there are some larger complexities here. But the simple part is that you've got an author, or excuse me, you've got a historical figure who identified as a man, um, mm-hmm. died that way. Expl- Funerary cl- witches yeah, said, <laughs> bury me in my bedclothes, don't disturb yeah, me. Yeah. Um, and those wishes are clearly not being respected. And you saw at the, when the moment that the author kind of released this, um, you know, kind of did the celebratory got a book deal tweet. Um, you know, a lot of people were kind of upset, not even kind of, where they were really upset. Mm-hmm. And from what I can tell, rightfully so. I mean, it seems like we've got a situation here where there's like a misgendering happening, but that would be one thing. But there's been sort of this weird double down. That's happened throughout. Like you've seen a couple different, you know, Celeste Ng, for instance, is someone who has, you know, responded to the author and has kind of said, "Hey, I hope you're taking into account the many, many trans people who are, you know, in your mentions right now, saying that you're, you know, misgendering this person, that you're kind of disrespecting a person's, you know, dying wishes to be identified a certain way for the sake of your, you know, novel." Yeah. And um, and basically approaching this canonically trans historical figure as a um, trans exclusionary feminist. Yeah. Right. Um, it's tricky. I mean, well, like this part, none of it is tricky so far. This part is right. pretty straightforwardly bad. Um, but it's, it's tough because on the one hand you could see a situation where this sort of thing happens. You know, this is an author clearly of talent and merit, right? Like they've clearly written material that people have liked. You know, they got to deal with Little Brown, right? Like they're doing, they're clearly doing something right in their writing. You know, someone you would kind of expect, especially given how much research they've said they've done, all these sorts of things. Like you would expect this to be the kind of person that would want to incorporate, that would want, well, first of all, would want to be accurate, but second of all, would be 
able to listen in good faith and respond. Right. And you simply haven't seen that. And it's been it's been tricky because like there's a version of this story where the author hears this stuff and says, you know what, this is great points. I was maybe a little bit careless. I'm gonna take all this into account and we're gonna look at the manuscript and everyone kinda comes away feeling not if not good, but feeling better. Right. And it could have been yeah. You know, at some point it could have been a case of this is just how the book was pitched. You yeah. know, it's not right. actually representative right. of the text, etc. Right. Um, I think that the 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 general stance, the correct stance, is that it is Levy who is on the wrong side of all of this here, and thus Little Brown who is on the wrong side of this for acquiring it. Um. But it brings into account a really interesting question. Yeah. Which is, you know, when, like, novels by right are very, very different things than histories. That is one thing to make clear here is that this is, this is, this a is novel. fiction. This is not, like, a meant to be a biography. This is a novel. This is a novel. Right. They're very different things. The idea is, is that with a novel, you get to invent stuff. Mm-hmm. And it is up to the author to make things as researched or not researched as make believe or as true as the primary sources allow for. You get to take some it. liberties. You get to take some liberties. Um and so I think I think it's worth examining not dwelling too much on this particular project but really examining overall what the sort of unwritten because I do believe they're unwritten the unwritten rules for what freedoms and what liberties you get to take with people who's people who really existed. Yeah. Or currently exist. Or currently you know, exist. Like because when we <laughs> when we were talking about this earlier today, one of the examples that you kind of tossed out there that I thought was very funny in its own way was those like Barack Obama, Joe Biden novels. Like, you know, novels? Yeah, where it's like it's you're writing about real figures in a weirdly fictionalized like uh, these are very strange strange books but like the point is that they exist right like these are you know there are you know these fictionalizations of people that we can all know as historical figures and current figures and um but it it i was thinking about that in relation to this and they obviously don't connect for a number of reasons but it got me thinking a lot about power you know say more on that yeah because when you're, for instance, writing a fictionalized account of some person like, say, an ex-president, especially a beloved sure. ex-president, someone like that, it's it's very easy to like you're not you're not really hurting anyone, you know? Like it's light one, it's lighthearted. Two, this is the power imbalance between author and figure is pretty vast, right? right. Like if you were punching at all, and those books certainly do not, um, you're punching up. Yeah. You know? Whereas in a situation like this where we've got a, you know, where we've got issues of, you know, trans, you know, transgender issues and things like that, where you're dealing with, you know, a section of the population that I think is fair to say is frequently victimized. Incredibly you know, marginalized. Incredibly yes. marginalized is often, you know, lives, you know, a life, you know, especially here in America that can be described as, you know, perilous with regard to, you know, legislation, with regard to power, with, you know, it's, the power is not with trans people, you know, in so many societal ways. And, you know, there are these structures that are kind of built to, you know, keep them out to, um, you know, make their lives, frankly, you know, worse in a lot of different ways. And it's like, 
to take that and then to be an author with, you know, the sort of power to have, you know, kind of a major book deal like this, and then to just kind of go about and erase know, all misgender of that. and erase yeah. all of that. And like, because you can sort of put this into a into a larger political project, right? Where like, you know, you can sort of erode the trans cause a little bit with this yeah. sort of like kind of turfy writing, you know, and I know a lot of people hate that yeah. phrase, but sorry. It's um, accurate. I know, I know it's, but I, of course it is, but like. Turf stands for trans exclusionary yeah. radical feminist. Um, yeah. But like you can see how this is a situation where you're you're punching down at a vulnerable population. Right. Um, and I don't know, I guess that's that's kind of my that's my very first impression, which is yeah. that when you're when you're taking liberties with things, are you doing it in a way that is, you know, not hurting anyone? Because clearly here it's demonstrable to see how many people feel hurt by this, yeah. which is a lot. It's easy to see how many people like could stand to be kind of hurt with this sort of, you know, project passing through a major, you know, gatekeeper like that. I mean, it's it's tough. But... I think in considering the the different pillars of like or if you're following the flow chart of yeah. how much can I invent about this real life figure. Right. Um you went immediately to power, and I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah. I immediately went to primary sources. Okay. Um, so the thing that is, like, people people keep coming back on in a, in a way to undermine the, the, the cause and the veracity of yeah. this particular marginalized community is, well... They have trans people haven't always existed, which is patently untrue, right? right? But right. the language has changed, right? And so I think what is particularly egregious about this situation that stands up as an example for all historical fiction writing is that this doctor has there are a ton of primary sources available in his own handwriting, in his own funeral arrangements, in the way that his friends talked about him Mm -hmm. throughout his entire life, the way that his lovers talked about him. And so I think you, the more primary resources you have, the less, the less, the fewer liberties you get to take. Like I'm kind of thinking about this in comparison to, um, like a, a a book that's been written about, you know, from the perspective of somebody whose name was on the Titanic's manifest, but mm-hmm. died in the, you know, died in the water and then nobody knows about yeah, anything about great, her. This is a great comparison. Yeah, right. More. Um, and there are, I think, is it The Dressmaker? I read it at the very, very beginning of 2018. And it is um, based on a character that was actually on board the Titanic and it kind of invents this whole life and all of these relationships built, built on just names because, because that's all there is else. Yeah. because you know nothing else yeah. and that's all there is. And like, you know, and compare that to like Philippa Gregory who does all of like the other Boleyn and mm-hmm. all of like the Henry the eighth stuff um, and all of those other Royal things. And a lot of that it's commonly understood that, these these figures have in a lot of way passed into legend. And mm-hmm. these figures, if there are primary sources, like even portraits, right? Even portraits were edited while they were being made to make people more attractive. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's also this idea of 
people have been taking liberties before and the 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 common consensus is out there so i guess i can you know make this particular relationship a little bit stronger a little bit more strained or something you know you like and that becomes easier and easier and easier the further back you go Mm -hmm. because the further back you go the fewer resources there are but also like the fewer the less resemblance it has to modern day society and the the less it will i think deeply cut I think that that's a really that's a really interesting way to look at it. I, a really valid one, and it's like, it's one of those things where even in our, like in our kind of silly you know, um, Barack Obama fanfic thing that we kind of reached for. Not that it's a particularly illustrious example of anything, but just to go back to it a second, you'll notice in those books or any book like that mm-hmm. that sort of t- takes those liberties. They're not actually changing the core data. Right. You know, like they're not changing anything about Obama's identity. They're not changing any of the facts. Right. They're doing what you just described to a much different degree, which is taking a gap. In this case, we don't know how he spends a given day. You know what I mean? This is, it's sort of a, you know, you see, but you see what I'm saying. Right. right? Like, and like as a president, yes. you know, everything that you say is in the public record. Right. And so you have a little bit more so, access to all of that. So yeah. there's not even in that kind of silly case, there's still a, a certain amount of fidelity to the the core data of the situation, mm-hmm. which is, I think, where the problem in lies here, which is that we yeah. have a one, you know, one piece of core information about this character has been flipped and fictionalized in a way that just happens to undermine a vulnerable pop, vulnerable population's, mm-hmm. you know, fight for respect and dignity and rights in this country. You think about historical fiction; it's so often about like filling in like the titanic example is great right because it's when you have like a point a gap that's been pointed out like a a manifesto with names on it but we don't know anything about the names right it's it's perfect you know or like maybe you find you know some artifact with a name on it or a story on it or like you know in ancient greece you know there's all these you know some of the artifacts are like receipts for transactions and stuff and it's like you can make you could see how you could make up stories around this stuff that wouldn't feel in the way of any sort of actual historical you know but i even thinking think about like how in don't judge me the movie a knight's tale with heath ledger i love a knight's tale i do too it's like my favorite movie but so i when i was like a breathy teenager Uh i had it on dvd and i watched the director's commentary because like oh good more people talking about heath ledger is that Um, another movie where paul bettany gets naked yes that was like one of the originals one of the originals okay so paul bettany plays Jeffrey Chaucer. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting is in the the commentary, the 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 director of the film or the writer of the film, I can't remember, mm-hmm. was talking about how there is a period of time that is unaccounted for in Jeffrey Chaucer's life. Oh, There's like a period yeah. of a few years yeah. where nobody knows what he was doing and mm-hmm. nobody knows who he was. And it was any kind of like and they talk about his financial troubles at that sort of time mm-hmm. and then he just disappears. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they took this completely invented world. Like, yeah, this completely invented everybody else except for took Jeffrey Chaucer and, like, a soundtrack by David Bowie (laughs) and, like, put Jeffrey Chaucer in there in a way that's that's defensible, in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Um, One thing... I'm just just so upset by this because E.J. Levy, like, also could have done something that 
a lot of historical fiction authors do, which is they're inspired by somebody, mm-hmm. and then they write somebody completely new. Yeah. Like, what Levy could have done is looked at the case of Dr. James Miranda Berry and then a couple of other doctors. And there are real examples of women doctors in this time living their lives as like functionally as men but identifying as women like Mm -hmm. there are real examples all over europe sure and could have been inspired by all of these people and kind of came up with something new maybe maybe she had taken the setting from barry's story but and and but had taken the the story story from somebody else and like could have made this in a in a way that was inspired and was the story that she wanted to tell but wasn't quite as aggressive in the interpretation mm-hmm. yeah no i mean it and again it but it just it comes back to the 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 transgression of the boundary of what's real and established and right. respecting a person's you know rights and like you know one thing you know the author's been kind of saying online a little bit is well you haven't read the book how can you judge without having read the book and like Maybe on its face, there's like a certain kernel of truth to that. Like, I guess we'll see. Because one, I mean, I not to spoil anything, but I don't think this is getting pulled. No. Um, but I don't think there's even been a statement from no, the publisher no, yet. No, there isn't going to be. Um, but it's like you can just sort of see it. Like, you know, we don't have to. It's the same sort of thing. Like, you don't have to see everything to understand where it's going or why it's particularly painful for a particular community. Okay, so our next thing. Excellent uh. <laughs> transition. Yeah, really good. Um, thank, how does it feel thank when? Thank you, Laura. How does it feel <laughs> when when we call out the transitions, Eric? It feels really good. I'm glad that we're doing it. Do you feel seen? Um, yeah, I feel very seen. Great. It's it's really helpful. I'm feeling a lot of self esteem as we power into the second half of this show. Excellent. Uh, um, so something popped up the other day that you know kind of it got rehashed, hashed, and rehashed. So like intensely when it happened that afternoon that we're not going to like do the recap of it but basically what had happened is a you know an author had put out this survey for the kidlit community that asked them or asked any author who'd been represented or had previously been represented to rate agents on a number of pragmatic things out of five right and the idea was to kind of create this you know public facing database that would let you see like sort of like a performance tracker. For, so you could see yeah. what what agents behaved in a certain way and align them with your needs. Okay, and so this happened, and the agent community, as you might expect, immediately kind of blanched at it. There was sort of a back and forth about, well, aren't you, you know, flattening the work that agents do? You know, all this kind of it stuff. It feels a little hu- inhumane. It, yeah, it felt sort of like we were being put on like a Yelp, you know, review for like. A, I don't know. It just it felt vaguely inappropriate. My right? breadsticks were undercooked. <laughs> yeah. Another speak to the manager. My situation. breadsticks uh, are always impeccable. I made such mm-hmm. a good I made such a good hummus spread before this episode. If I was yeah. a if I was a restaurant on Yelp, I'd always get five stars. That's true. Um, but so just like print anyone run, who gives print run five stars. Most of the people who listen to the show probably saw much of that discussion happen. It sort of ended, I think, pleasantly with the survey coming down because of what felt like a good faith conversation. But so none of that is as interesting, Laura, to us, I think, as the question of why do you think something like that, a survey that seeks to kind of gather author responses to agent behavior, why do you think that comes up and who, like, 
where is this impulse coming from and how can we like address it differently? You know? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think at its core, something like this really just seeks to figure out what agents are meeting author needs. And mm-hmm. that, that is a very complicated question. And to give you a little bit of background, this particular, the person who created the survey um, was on her fourth agent, which yeah. is like good for you. Find like, you know, yeah. trying and being yeah. that, you know, keep going and going and going until you find the right agent, but was also previously represented by Danielle Smith, yep. who um, in our in our agent fraud episode, <laughs> you can hear all about Danielle Smith. Um, but basically she was defrauded mm-hmm. um, and coming off of what I can only assume to be uh, like legitimate agent experiences yes. and then going into that and then finally landing with somebody that's good and reputable, et cetera. Um, this author, like very, very many authors, although probably not quite to this degree, um, is left feeling that the getting an agent <laughs> is not the end of the road. Like getting past that like gatekeeper thing mm-hmm. um, doesn't mean that you're not floundering and you're not alone. Right. There's kind of this this idea, and you know, I I talk to a lot of authors about this, agented authors, people agented by other people yep. than me, about like what is normal? Is this okay? What would you do? What am I doing? Like what's going on? And I think. It, it comes from a lot of places. Um, you're in, like, when you go out on submission, you are essentially putting your career in somebody else's hands and yeah. you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs in a process yeah. that takes many, many months, sometimes years. Mm-hmm. You also don't have points of comparison. You know, mm-hmm. unlike when you're writing, this is this is something different. You can't look back on what you wrote last week and go, yeah. oh, okay, this feels right. A lot of the time also, like, your writing and your agent is agenting, and those areas don't really overlap very much. And so it can feel and sometimes does feel like your agent is kind of out in the ether doing this stuff or not doing this stuff, um, and, and you don't know what's going on. And yeah. so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of insecurities there, and there's also a lot of different personal approaches because all authors are different, all books are different, all genres are different. Um, all relationships are different. Like I was actually having a conversation with one of my authors this week about um, their 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 shifting genres a mm-hmm. little bit, and mm-hmm. I explained how I sell a book in this genre that you're they're moving to is very different than how I sell the book in their original genre, sure. and that it looks very different, sure. and that I have a kind of pre-sale process. That is something that doesn't exist in the other genre. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think also, though, Eric, like that is that's a lot of like how the sausage gets made that yeah. a lot of agents are very reticent to share with authors because you don't want to give them else something else to stress over. You also want this to be a partnership. You want to yeah. put your head down and do your work. And so they can put their head down and do their work and you guys can all make lots of money together. Well, so it's I mean. It feels like what you're describing and what I think a lot of authors feel in these situations is that even after fighting your way through to getting an agent, right, which is a difficult process and one that I know a lot of authors struggle with, think a lot about, all that kind of stuff, then it finally happens and it can still, like you said, like it can still feel like 
you're groping in the dark. You still a feel like bit. you're lost. You still feel like you haven't gotten anywhere. You know, you still, you know, your points of comparison are gone. And there's just this desire for transparency, right? Yeah. And that's where I think like the crux of this issue is, is that authors want, they want to know everything that's going on. Transparency in, in terms, especially of, is this person taking care of me and yes. my needs? Yeah, exactly. And like, it's just so tough because the like how you just put it like my needs or like taking or even any part of that the taking care of the needs all of that none of all of that is like not quantifiable Mm -hmm. you know so many different ways you know so much of it is the result of like we like you just described with your clients like just these really kind of sophisticated interpersonal conversations right Mm -hmm. it's like how would you like what you just described to me like let's say all of that ended yeah and there was no sale and the author and you and the author split ways how would you put that on a scale of one to five. There's no way to do, You know what I mean? That's an incredibly complex situation. It's right. incredibly... It's not one where anyone really screwed up. It's one where two people, like any relationship anywhere, tried to make something work. It didn't quite, and they parted ways, you know? And it's like... So... But we end up in this point where I think that the reason maybe this kind of survey stuff comes up in... And again, I give the person who created it a lot of credit for yeah. listening and taking it down. And I think their original impulse was fine. So it's... This is a, I think, a really constructive place to be, but it's it almost feels like there's this move to think of agents as a they're a step, a step like a gate or like a benchmark as a po- that I wrote the book, be, I got the right, agent, I sold the book, that now can I'm a be published judged. author. It's like you're almost rating like this is gonna this will be kind of I guess kind of a crude analogy, but it's almost like you're you're rating a stretch of road. You know what I mean? It's like, was this particular part of the road, you know, clean sailing and, you know, smooth or was it bumpy? Did it have obstacles? And that's like you can just flatten it into how efficient it was, you know. And I just don't think that that is one resembles at all what I, how I think about my job. And I don't think that it's something that really authors would actually want. You know what I mean? Like it's the sort of thing where um, so much of what we do is so personal, not only in the way we talk to um, authors, but in the way you and I talk to editors. You know what I mean? Like one thing with the transparency thing that I think comes up a lot is it would be like I heard yeah, I heard someone suggest once, like what if we had um, like a query tracker for being on submission to. <laughs> yeah, that was I just had like a visceral, visceral reaction um, to that. But so the reason, but I think the reason and you tell me, you, I won't put words in your mouth, so you tell me if I'm wrong here. But the reason that that kind of inspires a little bit of a balk from you is that it, it's sort of the same sort of thing. It it flattens it out a little bit, right? Like I think of my submission processes, and it's so many personal conversations with people I have pre-existing relationships with, yeah. and so much of it is about like okay, well, I always like to start with this person and hear what they think because they read in a specific way. And then I'll move to this other person in their house. Like, there's like all this, none of it is just like a... Or it's even like, I've pitched a book over Facebook Messenger because it comes up naturally in a conversation I'm having with an editor. You know what I mean? And there's, there's kind of like, there's all of this that's, that's hard to, hard to hit on. Um, And I think... Like, and to be clear, it sounds a lot like we're being defensive of the way that we do things and that, um, you know, oh, the there agents, needs to be more transparency. Right. There's and, no question. And so I, I want to I want to take a moment and really, really hit on, I think, the, the, the point that Eric and I are working towards 
And it is that the system is built in such a way. And I'm talking about querying, but I'm also Mm -hmm. talking about publishing in general. Mm -hmm. The system is built in such a way that it always places the emphasis on getting the agent because getting the agent is that access point. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Um, but the, but I think where agents in, in publishing in general and the way that people talk about querying and submissions really fail an author or even the whole community of authors is that we don't talk about how as an agent, you spend almost all of your time as a manager rather than an access point. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not like a simple pass through, you know, and it is so much more, um, I guess, personal. I, I keep coming back to the word personal. Yeah. You know, because when I think about um, what I, you know, the work that I do with various writers, you know, it's talking about, you know, various personal things going on in their lives. It's rec- It's talking about different books. It's trying to help them through writer's block, you know. It's you know, meeting with them when they're distressed, trying to, you know, I mean, it's lending books. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I don't know, it's a million, it's a million different things that feel very different than just, you know, I mean, it's managing disappointment, it's managing success, it's trying to navigate, you know, multiple routes and trying to figure out who the person is. Like, it's a lot of editing, you know, (laughs) at least for me, I know, like, I feel like I almost edit too much, probably. But um, the point is that, there's just all this stuff going on and it just makes it really hard to quantify. And I think I see the need or I see the reason why people want that quantification, but it just, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure that the process actually reflects that reality. Right. I think, I think if we take in the idea of like, if we, if we approach this idea of, measurement as a useful tool for authors to find the right manager not the right access point but the yeah. right manager yeah um and we take into account that personal nuance side of things i've been thinking about it all week yeah um and i have kind of come down to this idea of it is not like i i don't think the answer is another set of of reviews because there are forums there there's all of that it's like the problem is not how the authors use the system the problem is how we how we present the data Mm -hmm. right and so i i was Mm -hmm. thinking a lot about how like i'm i'm far enough into my career where all of the people who are not right fits for me or most of the people who are not right fits for me have moved on and we figured that out and whether it was mutual or it was one side or the other side um that's already happened so i've got really like this lovely core of what i hope will be career authors for me right um and so one thing that i've noticed is that i as i've as i've moved forward in my relationship with these particular authors i've learned things about that it's really important for me to know right at the beginning um, and I think that for an author, it's really it's really important for them to think about before they start searching for an agent or before they get on that call. So I, I think the 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 question is is like how responsive are they? How editorial are they, et cetera? Like those are not the right questions. I think yeah. the right questions 
are like okay where and i'm talking about like from the perspective of like an agent asking an author sure but the right questions are not it, it's not you know i edit my books before i send them out the 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 right focus is okay do you want freedom in the ideas that you write all the time that'll decide if we want to do a series or not and how mm-hmm. long that series is yeah. do you want to jump around into genre and if so which ones mm-hmm. and that'll change everything um what is your pace like what is your like quite honestly what are your neuroses like what yeah. do you feel like you need to con- you need control over i really like to ask the question how do you work yeah like i really like to ask the question okay like close your eyes and imagine that we're five years down the road. Your book sold this year. It came out. It did well. What does that look like for you? What does a successful experience for publishing look like? And a lot of authors, like I ask this, and they go, oh, well, I just want to be published. And I'm here to tell you that that is not good enough. <laughs> like, you can be, like, it's it's unreasonable. And people don't want to say, you know, like, oh, I want to be J.K. Rowling because they don't want to, like, be you know, like they don't want to be snooty or like think that an agent's going to think that they're crazy. But like what that tells me is, is it important for you to be visible in bookstores? Is it important for you to do in-person events? Is it important for you to be seen as a thought leader? Is it important for you to be in hardcover versus softcover? Is Mm -hmm. it like, what is, what are these relationships look like? Is it more important for you to have less say over the publishing process and maybe more money because you're doing more books a year? Or is it really important for you to have a team that you feel like you're a partnership of? You know, on the nonfiction side, it's something that I that comes up a lot in addition to those questions is how does this book fit within your other work? Yeah. You know, like I work with a lot of professors, first and foremost, a lot of academics who are trying to either figure out how the book is going to help them um, you know, further themselves in their field or if it mm-hmm. if it signals a break away from the academy. Mm-hmm. You know, I work with, you know, some activist folks who are trying to figure out, you know, how paying attention to the book is gonna work is gonna fit in with their, you know, on the ground, you know, organizing. I mean, it's it's that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. like it's a whole lot of I mean, a lot so much of agenting I think is helping authors figure out where their writing life sits in relation to the rest of their life. Yeah. You know? I mean, I I want to know and this this is not something I would ever want to see or require in a query letter, but when I'm like on the call with somebody, mm-hmm. I really want to know from, you know, from the get-go if they are in difficult financial straits yeah. or if they're marginalized in some sort of way that will yeah. affect their writing yeah. because like if you are a writer and we are using your writing to help pull you out of poverty your career trajectory is going to look a lot different than somebody who's just writing and putting their money in the bank right yeah. and like that is and and you know i think that should be a true consideration for authors that they're working with somebody who really understands what your definition of success is and what your limitations are. Well, so you know? let's, yeah. Like, let's loop back all these things. So we've sort of done the work of characterizing agenting as something right. deeply human, right, as we would like to. Like, obviously, we're trying to, in a lot of ways, we're painting 
our jobs as something much bigger than books, right? Like we're trying, <laughs> at least we see them that way. Maybe it's a little bit idealistic, but like we're painting a picture of work that involves really, you know, he, deep human connection, really working with people, all that kind of stuff. But let's get back to that idea of transparency to kind of round out the topic. Yeah. Like how do you see all of that fitting in with, you know, sort of a lack of, you know, visibility maybe on the author end, you know, like that sort of angst that that survey was meant to address, you know, like how do you, how do you get across all the things you just described to someone who's earnestly trying to make decisions and gather information, you know? Well, I think the first thing is that every writer should at least have an acquaintance who's further along in this process than they are where they can basically level check level set right mm-hmm. they can they can check to see that like and many maybe ideally like 3 to 5 of these people where you can go okay my agent does it this way mm-hmm. does this sound bananas to you yeah or like it like because i think a lot of the fear is is finding out that you're with a bad actor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so if you have relationships with people in, in specifically other agencies, not just with other agents, but other agencies, yeah. and like it would be amazing if there was kind of this network and forums do a little bit of this, um, but really just speaking about that because that also lets you uncover inequality in a lot of ways that are that might be built in institutionally Mm -hmm. so i think that's step number one from the author's side um i think from the author agent relationship side um i really think that a less I, i think that we should treat the call as less of a sales call and more of a first date if yeah, that makes sense, it should be the ways. start of a conversation. Yeah. yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think that I know that anytime I have, um, you know, gotten to that, like I always really like that call. Oh, I love with, it because you're kind of pat. You both already agree that you like the book, and you're just like talking at that point. Mm-hmm. And I and it always happens like in that moment, you can sort of feel the writer realize that they're not like being interviewed. Yeah. You know, like that you're really just trying to have a conversation with another because people get on that call and they are ready and they are keyed up and they are like ready to talk about whatever, you know, they've got like they've like prepared, you know, well, which, which you is, should do. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. But you get what I'm saying. Like they, they show up looking like they're ready to get the job. Yeah. As opposed which, again, is good. But they quickly, I think, see that it's actually more of a conversation meant to just decide if. We're going to get along if it's going to be a fit. Like the best calls I've ever had have been, and I think you've you know talked about this experience before too, where it's like you end up just talking about other stuff. You know, you end up yeah. trying to just see how it feels. But like all of this is a big way of saying like there's no way you're ever going to remove the human element mm-hmm. from this. And so the way, you know, and that's why I do think like sites, you know, to go back to the original problem that was trying to get addressed, like sites like Writer Beware or sites like Absolute Right, like these places that do try to gather human experiences that have happened with agents who maybe weren't so good, who were behaving in bad faith, who were scammers, like that stuff is really good and it's useful. Um, But even those are, those are human stories. You know what I mean? Those are like accounts from people like, and in in the positive too, like you're never going to get around the best way of doing this is just to talk. 
Yeah. Like it's just to communicate with other writers. And I know sometimes like people like in the negative or in the most severe, they call it like a, you know, a whisper network or something. It's like, it's also just talking to other writers, you know, like, and that feels like a very. Trying to compare apples to oranges. Yeah. It just feels like a very, I don't know. I think that that's a core part of being a writer. I think honestly, like talking to other writers. I know that writers in particular are perhaps a. Um, you know, breed of person that isn't always as comfortable with that. <laughs> but like, I think that that kind of community, like, you're never going to substitute community for reviews, you yeah. know? And in terms of tips, if you want actionable yeah. items to yeah. walk away in this, like, you know, I the make friends with people outside of your agency so you can kind of talk about your experiences. Um, I would also say that no reputable agent would ever remove their listing from query tracker or writer beware uh even if they're a gigantic new york company i will Uh, we're gonna be doing another soup recipe or something on here in a minute yeah maybe uh stew no we're on to stew we're on to stew yeah um i will also say that an author or an agent that gets on the call uh-huh. and tries to sell you really hard about how much money they can make you or like how what other successful authors they work with yeah. probably don't have your best interest in mind. Yeah. And they're probably not going to meet you where you are, especially mm. if you have um, particular needs that need to be addressed when talking about your writing career that are kind of more holistic. Mm-hmm. So and and. You know, to what degree people feel like they want to require that in their agent is kind of up to them. Same with the amount of, like, how fuzzy of a relationship do you want to have with an agent? Do Mm -hmm. you want to be able to text them a quick question? Is it okay that it's very formal? You know, like, I personally, um, I have some relationships, you know, I'm one person, but I have some relationships that are a lot more casual and a lot more, you know, kind of closer to friendship and then I have others that are a lot more professional but in terms of the care I give my authors it's all the same it's just like that's what works best for that author Um, it's funny how that works like I know that I have some authors who I talk to pretty frequently like in DMs on Twitter and stuff and other authors of mine who check in very happily so like every like four months yeah and they're like off doing it's like perfect and that's okay (laughs) and like the thing is is like it's okay on the call it's okay when you're considering an offer to weigh your actual needs and not feel bad about them like the thing is like you don't have to sign with anybody who you think you're going to be a nuisance to yeah that's actually a really good way to put it yeah um and that is where you have some some rights you know like i feel like another place this comes from to kind of finish this up is authors feel powerless in this you know they feel like they get you know especially like the idea of like picking from agents i feel like is an experience that a lot of authors feel like they're never going to have like the idea that it's hard enough to get one let alone offers from like there's a lot of this that kind of stems from this anxiety that you're only going to get one chance at it and you're just hoping 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 that that one chance is a good one and it's just I don't know. Like, there's just a certain amount of, like, patience and communication that I think is going to really help, you know, make that stuff a better choice. Speaking of patience and communication, mm-hmm. I want to transition us to our Tulum It May Concern okay. yeah, of me. the episode. Hit I'm going to read it to you. <clears throat> Dear Eric and Laura, your name is spelt correctly. Hooray. That's incredible. I have a book out in April, and when I was asking for blurbs, I went to an older writer I admire 
and have had a lovely Twitter and email exchanges with over several years. She was very enthusiastic about it, told me exactly which, when she was planning to read it, etc. I followed up the other day, mostly because it sounded like my publicist might have overlooked some people when she was sending out ARCs, and I was worried she never got it. Her reply kind of winded me. She said she wouldn't be able to read it as she didn't have time and that she wasn't the intended audience and didn't want to discredit either of us by giving a quote when she hadn't read it cover to cover. She did give me a blurb, but it's vague and fairly obvious she hasn't actually read the book, at least to me, but maybe an average reader doesn't know how cynical the whole blurbing thing is. It sounds quite honestly as if she read a page, thought, oh no, this is crap, and ditched it. I don't know how to reply to her and whether it's even fair to use her quote because it sounds like I extracted it as you might a rotten molar when you don't have <laughs> anesthetic to hand, and it cheapens the whole thing if she hasn't read it. Honestly, I feel kind of gutted by this one. Help. Love. Winded and weepy. <sighs> Man. So, I think the, the honest, like... I don't know. You can, you know, cut this from the episode if you feel the need to, or you can tell me I'm being too cynical about it. I think you use the quote. And I think it's because, I think we, I think that you look at the state of blurbs right now, Laura, and what are we even, what are we even doing in blurbing right now? Like, if you have a quote from someone they have consented for you to use, and you think that it is useful and nice, Mm -hmm. I think that, and you want to use, like, it sounds like if, let me back up. The fundamental question here is whether or not you think the blurb is good or the comment is useful at all. Like if you think it sucks and it's it's going to make your, you know, it's not going to look good on the cover and it's not going to help do anything, then maybe you don't use it. But if the question is only like, yeah, there's this really great comment, even though it's kind of short and maybe, you know, the author didn't quite read it to the, you know, as thoroughly as I wanted, like I would still feel honestly – I'd probably use the quote, and maybe that makes me a cynical publishing man, but, like, I think that you look at what anyone else is doing. I mean, you hear stories of, like, certain you know certain authors, like, having, like, four blurbs just ready to go. Gary Steingart. And, like... Please blurb us. First of all, Gary, email me. So, <laughs> um, no, but it's just, like, I think that the question really comes down to do you think this is a plus or a minus in the effort to sell your book and if you think it's a plus i would have a pretty hard time just scrapping it because it's like you cuz you didn't actually extract it she gave it to you you know like the author said here's the quote that you can use and if it seems i guess if it's like so vague or something i don't know what's your thought so here's the thing um if an author really hates the book and doesn't want to blurb it even though they said that they previously yeah. will their agent will tell the publicist that they ran out of time and they can't yeah because yeah. that is what happens right um if somebody reads the book and doesn't like it um then they won't give you a blurb no matter how vague that is right like That's this kind is of my thought too yeah. so this is i think the author's attempt to correct the fact that she overpromised to you mm-hmm. and she hasn't read a damn part of it. Yeah. However, yeah, my I believe that the author has not read the book. However, I will say that the fact that this person fully intended to read the book and was excited about it and still blurbed it even though she hadn't read it mm-hmm. um is not in any way shape or form anything to do with your book other than she was excited to read this book and couldn't. Right. Um, I feel like it's important to remember, dear Weepy, (laughs) that 
a blurb is not for you to feel good. A blurb is a marketing tool. Yeah. The same way that your cover is, the same way that the yeah. copy on the book is, yeah. the same way that of the title. And you can be, because you've had kind of a personal relationship with this person, I mean, it's, it's fully okay to be a little hurt that they didn't quite get to it in time. Um, but I... I think the expectation for authors that everything in this industry is true and authentic and good and the only people that talk about your book are the people that read it and loved it um, is incorrect because a lot of this in this industry is publicity and marketing. A lot of things are really dumb (laughs) is the thing (laughs) about book publishing. And so I, I don't want you, dear Weepy, to think that your book is less than i don't want you to think that this person doesn't care or care about you i just want you to look at it as like maybe this person ran out of time or is feeling pressured by the publicist or something and wanted to help you but couldn't do so in a way that maybe you were hoping for but that doesn't diminish what they did for you exactly and like so you know i guess the necessary caveats apply which is that like if the comment is this book is good, then maybe don't use it. Or and or maybe just ask the publicist if yeah. they want to use it and if it's a good yeah, one. Because like maybe the publicist along, yeah. is super happy. Yeah, exactly. So, like, but this is a classic, like, you should see the other guy situation. Because <laughs> I promise you that you, your book is not the only one that has, you know, blurbs on it from people who are... Like, I, I was actually talking about this the other day with... Um, some other writer friends. Um, and it's weird. It's like, you know, sometimes I like put on the writer hat and I'm in like the same little chats, you know, that I, as an agent, am not privy to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was talking to the, some friends in my writing group and we, who, all of us who are, you know, spending too much time on the internet, we've started, you can start to notice the clicks of writers, especially like the ones who are like starting to kind of really establish careers. And you start to notice that they're all just like trading blurbs around. Mm. You know, like mm-hmm. everyone has like and especially it's this like is, the round robin. It's also especially through it is. No, it's truly like you can go like I remember picking up a book by a famous author recently and with a friend joking about being able to guess who the blurbs were by. And like of the five, we def we got like three of them just <laughs> like because we just knew who's we know who's blurbing each other. Like you can tell. And so it is a cynical exercise. And Like you go you look at like MFA programs like they're really like if you want to make an argument for an MFA, it's a blurb mill. Like you get, you know, if the you're dream. from if you're from Iowa, you get, you know, you get your obligatory Charles D'Ambrosio blurb. You know what I mean? This is how it goes. Like so much of this stuff is so much. It has nothing to do with like true artistic merit even though those things certainly apply to lots of these books but this specific part of that process is not necessarily about that your friend is doing you a solid it's a solid and and that's it and And you're allowed to accept the help yeah even if they don't think that you're like the the pages of your book were grown as fairy gossamer wings exactly so like you're lying in here about maybe readers don't necessarily um like, know how cynical this is. And so and that might be true, but I actually think that we're at the point now where readers do know how cynical it is and they just don't care. It's like a it's like a signally thing at this point, you know? It's like we can like for me, the what I like about blurbs is it has nothing to do with the text of the blurbs. It's the names. It's yeah. this I think this person was willing to put their name on this book, and that's it. 
Yeah. I don't have that's any. Really I don't. I don't care how they describe it. I don't care what they say. I'm looking at names. And if you think that this person's name, which they have willingly consented to have you put on their book on your book, if you think it would help you move a copy, I think that you should not. And again, if you don't want it or something. Then that's one thing. But, like, you should not, if you do, you should not feel bad using it. Fairness, uh, Weepy mentioned the, is if it's fair to use her quote. If it was offered willingly, it's fair to use it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, the only time that it would be not fair to use is if you took it off of a different book. Right, Like, yeah. if you're like, I'm stealing this Gary Steingart blurb. Which is also something that happens in publishing because you see you get the little text like praise for this past other or like praise yes. or praise for just the author and not this book yes like, there's all sorts of phrasing that gets all sorts of comment i'm telling you the blurb game is wild and if you've if you've got one and you're happy with it and you think that it does a good job of talking about your book or saying it's good you know whether- even if it does a bad job <laughs> yeah. give it to your publicist and they'll figure it out and like suffice it to say they know a lot more about what will help and what will hinder the sales of your book. Yeah. And if they're yeah. like, this is a garbage blurb that doesn't mean anything, then they won't use it. Actually, that's a great, um, a really great, like, actionable piece of advice that I think you should do no matter what is bring it up with the publicist. That's an easy one. Yeah. And they'll know what to do. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> and and to be fair, like, this is this is a conversation that it, it's also worth speaking about with your with your agent there's a lot of things in the production of a book that is like this Mm -hmm. um for example in the last couple of weeks i've been speaking with one of my authors who just got their cover back for their book and on first glance it was a negative reaction it was i don't like this cover because it doesn't reflect my book very well um the author slept on it and the author and I spoke a little bit about what a cover like this might do for marketing versus something else. And Mm -hmm. we kind of came to the idea that the reason that the author was so taken aback by the cover was not that the cover was bad. It was that it wasn't how the author saw the book in their mind, but the cover is a marketing piece. And it was really important that this particular cover like, it was really ingenious because it positioned this book in this, like, center of, like, eight different subgenres that could really hit it. Yeah. That could really make this book, and these are the words, break out. Mm. And so, like, <laughs> it was it was context and it was yeah. a conversation because you've spent your whole time thinking about your book as a piece of art. Yep. And now it's other people's jobs to, to sell it. And a lot of the time that is a horrible terrifying experience for for a writer um but if you have somebody like us like your agent like even even just going back to the publicist and saying you know i i'm new to this i'm a little bit worried that i you know that she wasn't able to finish reading the book is that okay and a lot of times they're used to that you know it's even just worth asking your marketer your or your um or your editor like is this okay is this normal this is what i'm seeing and a lot of the times they're happy to explain their choices to you it's just that in nor- like normally they don't do that mm-hmm. so i would say winded and weepy use the damn blur but definitely go talk to these people 
Yeah. And it's going to be okay. It's not I'm pretty sure, how the sausage gets made. I'm sure your book is wonderful. Yeah, sure it is. <laughs> and congratulations for getting that deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so now this brings us to the close of our episode. Thank you so much for joining the joining us on this the 94th episode we're getting run we are we're getting to that jamboree the the jamboree oh my that is not what it will be called we'll be calling Um, it the jamboree for what hashtag jamboree um yeah it's gonna the account it's gonna come with its own like memes um Remember to send us your queries, your first pages, your questions, etc. to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye.